We are wrapping up this series today. We have covered a lot of ground over the last few weeks. I've loved each message, but I'm most excited about this particular message. Here's what I want you to remember when I'm finished. Jesus offers a unique way of doing the right things for people. And his way is not only better than any other option, but it competes against any other option. And we, as a local church, choose his way over and above any other way. So grab a Bible, a phone, a notepad, whatever you must, and let's jump into part four of Nobody Else is Coming. Now, before we do, what is the mission of Forest Park Church? Our mission is simple. Help others follow Jesus one step at a time. We never want to lose sight of why we do everything we do. All right, let's get into part four of Nobody Else is Coming. How do we save the world? Will politicians do it? If we find a vaccine for COVID-19, will that save the world? Well, those things may change the world. They may make the world a little bit better. But the older I get, the more I travel and the more I read, the more convinced I am that thriving, healthy, growing local churches filled with people who follow Jesus will ultimately save the world. Our world is a mess and there's no one else coming to rescue us. It's up to us. One dark night, a well-known and respected Bible scholar, member of the Jewish ruling council, pillar of society, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus. Nicodemus is experiencing a crisis of faith. He's not sure what he believes anymore. Is his faith genuine? He has so many questions and few answers. He anxiously engages Jesus in discussion, trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is, what he is about, whether he should also follow him like so many others. Jesus, I've seen your miracles, Nicodemus says, and I've listened to your teachings, and they're impressive, but I'm not so sure about who you are. And Jesus responds with Nicodemus, you must be born again. This exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus makes me wonder, is it possible to be a student of scripture and yet confused about God? To be a committed follower of religion and your soul be dry? to teach others about God and not know him yourself, to be a devout, committed, passionate searcher of truth, yet remain ignorant. Is it possible to be a grown man, a father, a husband, a pastor, and yet have a need to be born again? Throughout nearly 35 years of intentionally following Jesus, I, like Nicodemus, have had my crisis of faith, several actually, and have felt the need to be born again, again and again. Well, today I'm sharing with you one of the most profound births I've ever experienced, a revelation of truth resulting in a fresh understanding of Christianity, an understanding that saved my faith. Let me back up a few years and get a running start at today. I call this section Back of a Napkin Christianity. This is a common illustration so many people use to explain the gospel to others. I'm familiar with it because I used it for years and thought of it as being legit. Let's summarize. What you see on your screen is a common 
uh, picture that many people use to try to express or try to explain the gospel. On the left-hand side is humanity in their state of sin. On the right-hand side is God in all of his holiness and purity. How is man or women going to get from the left to the right side? The only way that they're ever going to get there is because Jesus has bridged the gap. So we use the illustration and tell people, if you're on the left side and you're lost and you want to get over to the God side, on the right side, then the only way to get there is to cross over Jesus. Jesus bridges the gap, if you will. And then we lead them in a prayer, and they pray and ask Jesus into their heart, and they believe that he is the way to God, and they're saved. Well, what I explain represents Christianity to people gathered in churches all across our nation. According to this model, the problem is humans are separated from God due to sin, and Jesus bridges the gap. And if they believe in Jesus, ask Jesus into their hearts, they can run across to the other side and be safe. As with almost all models, it holds some truth. It's just woefully incomplete. According to this model, if one takes care of this problem, then one is basically finished with the journey, because the journey is just to get to the other side. In other words, humans are on the right, left side, and then we got to get over to the right side, so we believe in Jesus or ask him into our hearts. And for the vast majority of Christians, this is okay, because this image is about 90% of Christianity to most people in the USA. Here's another way of looking at it. I call this the messed up way we grade Christians. Let's take a look at the below average Christians, which represents about 25%. A below average Christian is someone who rarely attends church, gives inconsistently, doesn't attend group, doesn't volunteer, only shows up several times a year, but considers FPC his or her church, and prayed the prayer. Then we have the average Christian. That's about 45%. The average Christian attends church a couple times per month, gives financially, volunteers when there are needs, invites people to Easter and Christmas services, prayed the prayer, but is also baptized. Then we have what is called the above average Christian. That's about 25% of people. Uh, they attend church almost weekly, volunteers on a team, faithful member of a group, invites people consistently, promotes church, growing spiritually, prayed the prayer, is also baptized, and this person tithes or gives 10% of his or her income. Then you have what is called the ultra-Christian. This represents about 5%. They not only attend church all the time, but they invite and bring people. They lead a team or a group. They're part of a summer outreach trip. They study scripture daily. They pray daily. They're considered a mature Christian. They not only prayed the prayer and are baptized and tithe 10% of their income, but they go above and beyond the tithe. They actually give an offering, which is above the tithe. These are your ultra-Christians. This explains most of Christianity to most people. And this gives a window into my Nicodemus moment, crisis of faith, if you will. What did I actually believe? And was Christianity strong enough to hold my questions? It was in this tension when one of the most radical thoughts was presented to me. If this way of Christianity is true, the back-of-the-napkin version and this messed-up scale version, 
that almost everything Jesus taught on the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was basically meaningless. Think about it. According to these models, one can essentially remove the entire Old Testament. No need for any of that anymore. Almost everything Jesus did between his birth and death is virtually needless, other than feel-good stories and miracles to encourage your faith and morals. The entire Sermon on the Mount, no need for all of that teaching. What does any of that have to do with getting across to the other side? One could, in theory, skip all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, other than John 3.16, a favorite passage for Christians about perishing and mainly leading you to pray the prayer. We actually only need a few verses from Paul the Apostle, chiefly what is known as the Romans' road to salvation, the prayer. And that's all one needs to know. So that's it. And then we can go and live life any way we want. What I described in those two versions on the screen for you is Christianity for most people. Rest assured, every now and then you will run up against a difficult moral situation or something testing your faith, but just ask, what would Jesus do? Which is be kind and pay for people's food when there's a need, or buy the shoes for the little kid in line, you know, the Christmas shoe song. You learned that from a song and movie. Do your best, be kind, and you're a good Christian in the United States of America. Let me be clear. Whatever this is, whatever one calls it, Whatever name is given to it, it is not Christianity. Let me explain what it is. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, coined this phrase to define what he perceives to be the belief of many religious people. It works like this. One hears a message about salvation and one responds to it by lifting his or her hand, walking an aisle, and praying a prayer. And if said person is sincere, then God instills a barcode. And if anyone questions his or her allegiance, then the barcode, in theory, could be scanned to prove he or she is saved. For instance, a man who's 23 years old, prays a prayer at the end of a service, asks Jesus into his heart, and receives the barcode. The man goes about his life, attends Christmas services, Easter services, a few services here and there, gives to charity, is reasonably a good citizen, and dies at 85. He stands before God, and the question of whether or not he is saved comes up. The man gets nervous. He's not sure how this is going to play out. Then an angel brings out a large soul scanner. The man is picked up and slid across the scanner, and beep, the barcode reads, saved. The man is relieved and thinks to himself, whew, that was close. I had forgot about taking out that insurance policy all those years ago. And then he is escorted into heaven for eternity. A barcode faith. This concept is a series by itself that would take a lot of weeks to unpack. We're not going there. But what I will do is give a big picture view of what changed me from a thin barcode faith version of Christianity to a robust view of Christianity and revolutionize the way I think about God, Jesus, the Bible, and even non-religious things such as taxes, voting, government, money, work, careers, and especially one of the most religious items of all, church. And I'm going to explain it by using a hot button word. In fact, as soon as I say the word, there will be groans throughout. Here it is. Politics. Now, when you hear politics, what comes to mind? No cussing. There are kids, no doubt, listening, and church people also. 
More than likely, what comes to mind are presidential candidates, governors, mayors, political ads, voting, liberals versus conservatives, Trump versus Biden, Supreme Court judges, and stressful topics such as abortion, gay marriage, distribution of wealth. We could go on and on. But even if we combine all of those people and processes together, it would not define politics. Those are only parts of politics. They are not the whole. And unfortunately, a few are the ugly parts of politics. Here's a formal definition of politics. Activities associated with making decisions in groups or other forms of power relations between individuals, such as the distribution of resources. Let's make it simpler. Politics uh, is the process of making the best decision about what to do with what we have and getting it done. Even more simple, the best way to get the right things done for people. And this is what revolutionized everything for me. Politics revolutionized everything for you, Scott? No, listen carefully. When this clicked for me, I realized for the first time, Jesus is so much more. Christianity is so much more. Church is so much more than barcode faith or the messed up sliding scale for Christians. For the first time, I realized Christianity offers a better way of doing the right things for people. What revolutionized everything for me is when I recognized Christianity as an alternative politic to the way we are currently living and prioritizing and spending and saving and protecting and investing. It is an alternative politic to immigration and taxation and violence and marriage and education and you fill in the blank. Now I hear people say all the time, and I used to say this, whoa, wait a minute. Christians should stay out of politics. Churches should stay out of politics. Pastors should stay out of politics. And for the most part, I agree. Pastors and churches should still clear of promoting one candidate above another or trying to persuade people to vote a particular way. Yet, it is impossible for pastors and Christians and churches to stay out of politics entirely. Why? Because the proper definition of politics is the best way to get the right things done for people. And Christianity offers an alternative politic. And the tough reality is Christianity offers a competing politic to what you see in Washington, D.C. Here is where Jesus is radical. Here is where his followers should be radical. Here is where his church ought to be radical. And here is where many of us, including those who position themselves within the church, part ways with Jesus. Where? Right in this spot. This is the rub. See, Jesus doesn't offer an improvement to our current politics. He refuses to come alongside what is offered by Rome or Caesar or Trump or Biden and tweak it, make it better, accept it and then try to make slight changes to it. No, no, no. Jesus throws our current political system to the side and offers a replacement. Jesus is a political revolutionary. Let me give you a few examples for the sake of this message. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. This is Jesus' inaugural sermon. This is Jesus presenting his plan, his politic. 
And what we find is Jesus stating the reason he is anointed, the purpose of his mission, is to proclaim radical economic, political, and social change. Verse 16, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as he normally did, and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Dr. Aubrey Hendricks of Columbia University points this out. In this passage, Luke's Jesus leaves no doubt as to the radicality of his calling. First, he heralded good news to the poor. That is, he announced that the reason for his ministry was to struggle for radical change in the circumstances and the institutions that kept people downtrodden and impoverished. He also announced release to the captives. That is, to those unjustly prisoned. Hendricks points out that Roman jails were full of political prisoners and those reduced to poverty by economic exploitation. Then he made the ultimate political pronouncement. He announced liberation to those who were oppressed by the crushing weight of empire. Jesus ended his inaugural sermon by, by, by proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, an illusion to the year of jubilee found in Leviticus 25, the end of a 50-year cycle when all land that had ever been confiscated or otherwise unjustly acquired was to be returned to its original owners. Jesus was a political revolutionary. Here's another example, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus instructed his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done. This was in opposition to Rome to Caesar, to Herod, to any of the rulers at the time. And Jesus taught them to pray for God's kingdom and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Another example, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Notice Jesus didn't say peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Not those who merely maintain the status quo and ensure that we all get along, no. Jesus said, blessed are those who make peace, how? by removing oppressors, crooked politicians, unjust laws, and anything standing in the way to genuine peace. Last example I'll give you, Matthew 25, verses 41 through 46. Then he will say to those on his left, get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you? Then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. It is a far-reaching alternative to how most governments currently treat people. Jesus was a political revolutionary. Scott, what does this have to do with this church? I want Forest Park to live out the alternative politic, to be a taste of heaven on earth, to live out the prayer of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. 
I want us to be learning and practicing a competing politic to everything you see and hear coming from D.C. And it doesn't matter who's in the White House, Republicans or Democrats, the politics of Jesus, not Caesar, not Herod, not Trump, not Biden, Jesus. And you know what this means? It means the people making up this local church, FPC, I want us to be too conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives. It means we will not fit into anyone's political box. We won't be labeled as Republican or Democrat. We will seem rebellious to some, inconsistent to others, weak to many, traditional to a few. It's because we refuse to take our marching orders from CNN or Fox or MSNBC or Newsmax or President Trump or Joe Biden. We commit to listening and following the marching orders of our leader and his nation, Jesus. We will welcome those others reject. We will give when people tell us to save. We will be faithful when we're encouraged to quit. We will love when it's easier to hate. We will forgive when people say we should retaliate. We will go when we are warned to stop. We will build tables rather than walls. We will construct bridges instead of barriers. We will follow Jesus. I want our prayer to be this. Jesus, I lay down my politics. I lay down my allegiance to an earthly leader with an earthly kingdom. I lay down my commitment to the current world's way of doing all things. And I embrace, I pursue, I pick up and carry the politics of Jesus and his kingdom. I don't know exactly what it all means. And I'm not sure how to live it all out. But I commit to evaluating everything I hear and read through the lens of Jesus and his revolutionary politic. And not through the lens of what I want or what I like or what my earthly political leader says. Teach me, Jesus, to live out a much higher politic rooted in and growing out of your kingdom. Amen. That is the kind of prayer I want us to pray. And when we pray that kind of prayer and we live that prayer out, I'm telling you, Forest Park Church will make a difference, not only in your life, but in the lives of people all across this region. Let's get busy building this kind of church. Let's get busy supporting this kind of church. Let's do what we must to see this church rise and be strong and healthy, to love people, and to take the incredible message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message today. Thank you for this entire series. Thank you for challenging us to take a look at the church, maybe from a different angle than we've ever seen it before. Awaken us to the seriousness of the hour. And may we accept the mission to help other people follow your son Jesus one step at a time and love them and serve them and help them. And together, do what it is you've called us to do in this time, on this day, in this place. And we ask these things in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for watching this video. While you're here, make sure you subscribe and turn the bell on so you don't miss any other videos or content Forest Park releases. Make sure you share this with a friend. Take a few moments and check out some other things Forest Park has.